0: Hello, welcome to the Quest Series. My name is Alan Mulhan. In the lead-up to this delayed episode, I was struck by a virus which laid me low over New Year. Aside from my depleted physical condition, mentally I was exhausted and unable to concentrate. I could summon no enthusiasm for anything. This podcast episode, far from being straightforward now, seemed formidable. I couldn't put two sentences together. As I was recovering, I rose one night at 4am, went to the back of the house with a view over the garden. The noise of the metropolis I live in had quietened. The moon was nearly full, and I fell into a meditation and inquired about my spiritual condition. I was informed that my light had gone out. I gazed at the moon through the clear night. Her light also varies, at times disappears, but then returns. I sought her help, praying that my little light could return. I thought of the Taoist principles of meditation, explained in The Secret of the Golden Flower, how there are two principles in the human condition, of Hun and Po, the light and the dark, which struggle for dominance, and how there is an encounter with the darkness. The method is to melt out the dark principle and to return to the creative. This is done by the circulation of the light around the subtle body. How true that felt at this moment, as the moon circled through the night sky. I next contemplated the episodes ahead, for I intended to talk at some point of Jesus Christ, as an embodiment of the spiritual hero archetype. I had thought, prior to my illness, that I was more or less clear about what I had to say, but now in the silence of the night, this seemed a vast theme too great for me. It's so easy, almost obligatory, in the contemporary age to recite the litany of complaint against the pillars of Western civilization, which include Christianity. But at this moment, in my own darkness, I thought of the enormous impact of Christianity, as well as other religions, upon billions across the ages, I tried to lift myself above the postmodern age of cynicism, and I considered how Christianity had been an anchor in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, when the Roman Empire collapsed. There was enough darkness and barbarity before that, but what followed was awful and is appropriately called the Dark Ages. How Christianity held a whole civilization together across millennia, how it banished devils and evil and held up a shiny archetype of light in the figure of Christ. I thought of the words of John's Gospel, I am the way, the truth and the life. And they seemed awesome. What language, what conviction, what authority. So I decided to stop thinking, to sink into myself, but taking a question with me. Who is Jesus Christ? which sunk into the centre of my chest, like a stone into a well. And some words bubbled to the surface that surprised me. These were, Jesus Christ was a real force, but he was not a real man. In this mini-series on the spiritual hero, I will explore what this means, and in what sense we are dealing with myth. This will be mainly in the following podcast, because this one is really an introduction. First, some general points. I use myth in the Jungian sense, that is, as narratives symbolic of consciousness itself. They are the form that our psyche chooses to express its own nature. They are symbolic, because that is the most precise, coherent, compact and effective manner by which consciousness can portray itself. Since consciousness is expressing its own nature, clearly this cannot be objective. It therefore uses archetypal, symbolic language and imagery, rather like in big dreams. For example, in the opening book of the Old Testament, a creation myth is presented. The words, let there be light, in their mythic rather than literal meaning, can be interpreted as the birth of consciousness itself, which is created by a transcendent source. Myths are therefore to be interpreted symbolically, rather than believed or rejected as literal narratives. Archetypes are recurring motifs, observed in beliefs, attitudes, character dispositions, and behavioural characteristics that occur across time in individuals, cultures and civilizations. Thus, creation myths, to continue the above example, can be found very widely in the world's religions and have similar themes with interesting variations. Thus, a story about a rupture in the primal unity with the creation of humanity is almost universal and signifies the emergence of consciousness from the unconscious, from the womb of nature, a rupture from the natural order which is unconscious. A variation on this theme is the Judaic, in which the apple from the tree of knowledge is eaten by Adam and Eve, with the subsequent expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Thus a notion of a primal fault, later interpreted as an original sin inherited by the whole human race, became one of the sustaining beliefs or myths that later underpinned Christianity. While other cultures widely shared the motif or myth of separation or rupture from a primal unity, they rarely have such a self-blaming narrative that marks the Judaic and Christian version, in which the punitive superego, to use Freudian language, is very marked. For example, the Taoist version speaks of an original oneness, ...from which a duality emerges that becomes embodied in humans as light and darkness... ...as I just mentioned in the introduction. The idea of a primal sin or fault is absent in this culture. Archetypal narratives therefore vary as they pass through different cultures. Once established, they have a deep and continuing impact upon them. Thus, we need to sift through the myths and archetypal narratives... ...understand them symbolically identify the components which are truly universal, and those parts that are culturally inflected and liable to change. Even these latter parts have their own truth, though somewhat limited, since they reveal an enormous amount about the culture they emerge from and grow in. In later episodes I will return to a more detailed examination of what is meant by archetypes. The hero is amongst the most common of all archetypes, and I shall focus on one important variant of it, the spiritual hero, which was the lens we looked through to examine Beethoven's Third Symphony in the previous three podcasts, in which I argued that it was not Napoleon who really underpins the symphony, but the myth of Prometheus, who is the heroic principle, which Beethoven embodied in his spiritual struggle to meet his darkness, experience his gnosis, and be reborn in his creativity. It was the myth of the spiritual hero that possessed Beethoven. The hero myth has been largely, but not exclusively, in the masculine image. But there are examples of heroines, both in ancient mythology and in the last few hundred years. There have also been some outstanding works of music, opera specifically, in which females have embodied this archetype. In the contemporary age there is, I believe, a heroic impulse carried by the female. I will give my view on this important development, not just from the point of view of gender politics, but what it signifies archetypally, that is, the so-called masculine and feminine aspects of consciousness. The heroic is the process by which our consciousness emerges and is transformed to higher levels. The hero in each one of us is our struggle with the darkness and our efforts at rebirth. So, too, in civilizations at the collective level, the heroic requires courage, vision, and sacrifice, which allows civilizations to be born, as well as to face their crises and be reborn. However, many civilizations have not been able to overcome their challenges and they have become extinct. Arnold Toynbee, in his Opus Magnus A Study of History, argued that civilizations are born as a response to challenges. Excessive challenge will crush the civilization and too little will cause it to stagnate. Civilizations survive and grow by continually meeting challenges and moving up to the next stage, like a climber ascending a cliff from one ledge to another. He argued that growth of civilization is driven by creative minorities who find solutions to the challenges which others then follow. The breakdown of civilizations comes principally from a crisis of leadership, the deterioration of the creative minority who have identified with the outdated images of themselves, who become arrogant and fail to address the next challenge. Jung indicated that the hero's main feat is to overcome the monster of darkness. It is the long hoped for and expected triumph of consciousness over the unconscious. He wrote in volume 14 of the collected works, Only one who has risked the fight with the dragon and is not overcome by it wins the hoard, the treasure hard to attain. The hero in the form of the warrior was the earliest expression of the archetype and commanded awe and reverence in all early societies. Warriors were their rulers and the greatest resembled heroes who conquered the dark forces of evil. The warrior was extremely important for archaic and early humans and was also central to many early societies and whole civilizations. The story of David and Goliath in the Old Testament is a good example. The tiny David versus the giant Goliath. Yet David slays the giant and becomes the ruler of his people. The warrior archetype has deep influence on the male psyche but increasingly on women in the modern age. But the warrior archetype only partially overlaps with the cultural or spiritual hero and they should be distinguished. Thus, although Siegfried in Wagner's music drama The Ring Cycle conquers the dragon and displaces Wotan, he carries little if any spiritual meaning. It is true he falls ecstatically in love with Brunhilde but this is short-lasting and he betrays that love. He is more of a warrior archetype. Warriors there are in plenty. But the hero has principles and is prepared to fight and, if necessary, die for them. Achilles, in the Trojan Wars, the subject of the Iliad, the first epic narrative of Western civilization, is another example of a hero with zero spiritual meaning, since he embodies the warrior and is obsessed with his own image and reputation. He is the antithesis of the spiritual hero, who is prepared to face dark forces, be the animal or human, and if necessary face death in the attempt to bring new light into the world. The warrior archetype, immersed in his own body and narcissistic glory, is still very prevalent in our times. Simply look at the statistics on the internet for the views of any sport that resemble the activities of warriors. This compelling archetype requires however modification and development. It needs to evolve into the spiritual and cultural hero archetype so that a new ethic for our species and the planet may emerge. This archetype in its primitive form, once so necessary in the early evolution of the species, now threatens the whole world. The Romans, like many conquering civilizations, held the warrior type in great esteem. They brutally dominated whoever opposed them and created an enormous empire. While Aphrodite, on the other hand, was one of their goddesses, She was more the principle of pleasure and sexuality rather than higher love. It is one of the supreme turning points of history that an opposite archetype to the warrior, that of the spiritual hero, embodying the principle of non-sexual, compassionate, higher spiritual love, became constellated upon an apparently insignificant figure in an obscure but troublesome part of the Roman Empire, Judea. Far from being a warrior, Christ embodied the principle of higher love. He turned the other cheek, sacrificed himself and died for his beliefs. Initially, one person, Paul of Tarsus, later called St Paul, and then a small band of followers, carried his message out of Judea, a message of a loving father and a life after death. And, despite persecution, this movement was to grow and become the religion of the Roman Empire. The vanquished took over the oppressor. They conquered them from within. Despite the collapse of the Roman West, the invading tribes from the north were eventually to also adopt the Christian religion. If ever there was an example of a creative, tiny minority leading a whole civilization to another level, this was it. Hero myths are some of the oldest stories we have. The story of Osiris' death at the hands of his brother, Seth, is probably the most dramatic and was retold across thousands of years of Egyptian history. In the beginning, Osiris and Isis, the pharaoh and his sister queen, were happy and in love. Their brother Seth was malevolently jealous of Osiris, whom he kills and dismembers. His body parts are then found by Isis, who brings him briefly back to life, in order to impregnate her, she subsequently gives birth to Horus, who later slays his uncle Seth and re-establishes the kingdom of peace and good rule, civilization. Osiris leaves the earth and embodies the principles of rebirth and justice. He is god of the underworld, judge of the dead. Creative and destructive forces are the underlying structure of good and evil. Osiris and Seth are polar opposites. Moreover, the power of evil appears quite comprehensive with the brutal victory of Seth over Osiris. Envy, hatred and violence are clearly regarded by the Egyptians as primary feelings or forces in the human species. An underlying division in human consciousness into dark and light, lower and higher potentialities, is evident in Egyptian mythologies. The Egyptian answer to the emergence of evil is a feminine principle at work in the form of Isis, who, rescuing Osiris, her brother and lover, creates a son who is later to re-establish civilization. The psychopathic or malevolent evil in mankind, embodied in Seth, does not win out. However, it's a close call. There are also a number of goddesses in the Egyptian pantheon, including Nut, who, far from being confined to the earth, was the goddess of the overarching sky. Again, there is greater stress on a feminine component of the psyche. Egypt, although a patriarchy, was clearly linked to the world of the Great Mother. The idea that there is a beneficent Mother who cares for the world, nature, all creatures, and mankind left a deep impact on the ancient Egyptian psyche. Such a battle between opposites, like Seth and Osiris, is of both collective and personal significance and is dramatically represented by the sun itself on its daily and nightly cycles in Egyptian mythology. Ra, the sun god, that is the god of consciousness, rules the day, but each night is devoured by the forces of darkness. Ra's reign is not secure, for each night he crosses on a bark over the waters, fights with the serpent of chaos, Apep, and requires the help of Osiris, the principle of rebirth and renewal, so as to emerge the next day. This battle between the forces of light and darkness symbolises the inner state of mankind, the nature of our psyche, our consciousness. The forces of order... The creative principles that have fashioned the existence of not only life but the human psyche are threatened by chaos and destructiveness. In mythic form this closely resembles the Taoist myth with which we began this podcast, except that the Taoist is more philosophical, proposing an original unity that divides into opposites of light and dark in human nature and which struggle for dominance. Similarly, the Taoist philosophy offers a way forward by which the light vanquishes the darkness. So we perceive archetypal themes in what at first glance seems radically different narratives. The Egyptians also had a conception of a judgment after life in which the heart was weighed. If it was deficient, then the deceased person was dragged off to be devoured by a ferocious beast, Amut. But if it was found to be good, then a journey to an eternal paradise took place. Osiris was the judge of the dead and the god of the underworld and the giver of all life. It was he who caused the fresh vegetation to emerge and the flooding of the Nile River and was described as he who is permanently benign and youthful. The kings of Egypt were associated with Osiris in death. As Osiris rose from the dead so they would be in union with him and inherit eternal life. Thus we see many elements of the Christian religion anticipated here, with Osiris, a Christ-like figure who dies and is resurrected, whose principle of love lives on, who is the basis of a new civilization, who is judge of the dead and therefore judges good and evil who is at the entrance of the gates of paradise, or who directs the way to something resembling hell. Thus we see many archetypal elements in a previous civilization, the Egyptian, which prefigured what was to emerge thousands of years later in Christianity. In our next podcast we shall examine more closely how the story of Christ, as told in the Gospels, but then elaborated in the early church, contains many other elements of the hero myth since it was the archetypal components of the Christian myth that, in my opinion, account for its lasting power over the millennia.